Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? Way twa hey run about the braise and put the goins fine. And there's a hand, my trusty fear, and gee's a hand of thine. Keep reading until next year for old Lang Syne. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Hey, how was, uh, how was your holidays? How was Christmas? Uh, pretty laid back. Um, little, little bits of ups and downs. Like I had some great time with my family, uh, but then you know, uh, one of my favorite holiday traditions kind of didn't happen. So, a little bit of a letdown. But I am bouncing we've, back. We've talked about this tradition, so go ahead and tell the listeners what happened. You should publicly shame the people that caused you heartache over the holidays. So, like for, and I was trying to go back in in um, either my Facebook or photo history to see how long this has been going on. Um, probably 12, 13, 14 years now. Uh, you know, the friends, uh, from high school that live out of town that are coming back to see their family, we all got together at IHOP or Denny's or whatever, um, to see each other once a year, uh, all as a big group. And, um, it was something that I started and I, I coordinated and I always kind of like cajoled people into doing. And, uh, over the years it's, it's kind of slowly like dwindled down smaller and smaller and uh this year enough people decided they weren't going that it just didn't happen olsen party of one olsen yeah. party of one yeah my You're, i was at denny's by myself <laughs> drinking whiskey Denny's table is ready <laughs> crying just sobbing into my fucking pancakes dude they don't even sell whiskey you had to like fucking bring your own yeah i had a little flask that i was going to share with everybody well well yeah. i mean you know, like I said, if you publicly want to name these people, I'm happy to give you a minute or so to do it if you want to publicly shame them. Uh, well, the, all right. So the only person I won't publicly shame is uh, my friend Jerry had a baby in October, a little, little boy named Harrison. So I really can't hold it against them so much. Every other friend I have in the world has let me down. Including this probably includes Adam, whose legs don't work. Adams, whose legs don't work. His legs did not get him to the Denny's. Uh, John Gatwood, longtime friend of mine, and uh, mentioned on the podcast multiple times, and his wife Alyssa. Yeah. That's uh, uh, plenty of shame. others. Shame on all of you. Shame on all of you. Oh, and it's you want to know what the fucking like, absolute like icing on the cake of this was? I didn't even <laughs> I didn't. Do, do tell. So I got a random happy holidays text from. Uh, my ex-girlfriend, who I was dating at the time that I started this tradition. Huh? And I was is like... That, is that Shane? Shane. Okay. <laughs> so I, I got a message from her. I was like, oh, hey, Merry Christmas, whatever. And she sends me a picture of a fucking IHOP menu. And it says... Uh, and her text is like, I'm trying out the tradition in Portland. Because that's where she lives now. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a fucking knife in my heart. I was like, oh, by the way, all my friends hate me and they they abandoned me. Uh, and then, because <laughs> this is even better. So, like, the, as if that wasn't enough, like, my ex-girlfriend is living my dream uh, somewhere <laughs> on the other side of the country. Uh, because of some sort of weird glitch with her texting thing, because she doesn't have an iPhone, she's got an Android. Mm-hmm. 
that text sent five times in a row. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so I just keep getting the same text from my ex girlfriend about how she's doing my IHOP Christmas. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> over and over again, and I was like still wallowing in my fucking bitterness that it didn't happen. And this text keeps coming over and over again. And it was just like, I'm just going to end it now. I'm going to just Epstein this is, myself. I was just going to say, you know, all, you know, it's important to check in on your loved ones on the holidays. <laughs> and this is why, because all their friends may abandon them. And then technology might taunt them <laughs> with ex-girlfriends. I mean, there's a variety of things that can, that can happen. And yeah. So yeah, well, the, the highs were, were not super high, but the lows were pretty fucking low is, uh, what about you? I was hoping we'd kick this off. Yeah, mine was fine, dude. I played video <laughs> games and watched TV shows. Like, it was great. <laughs> it's always my life that has some sort of weird <laughs> twist to it. Your life is like you're living that white picket fence. You've got two kids and a dog kind of like existence. Yeah. And mine is like there's ghost babies on the other side of my wall. And my friends are abandoning me and technology is taunting me about it. Dude, like, that's the difference. Like, I feel like my life is very predictable, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. Like, you know what I mean? But, like, I pretty much know what to expect, and my expectations are usually met. You, you know what I mean? But, yeah, that's, uh, well, glad we started this off on this, uh, <laughs> on this great, um, great note. Um, what are we doing? What are we doing tonight? All right. Honestly, before we move on, there's, there's something that came up recently that is kind of tangentially. Um, related to people disappointing me <laughs> and I didn't bring it up because like in the prom episode, if you remember, um, I talked about, I told the story of how John, my friend stole my girlfriend. Oh, that motherfucker. I remember yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. And took her to prom and then yeah. like later broke up with her. Um, I have since then hung out with both of them <laughs> and they both had watched, uh, um, the, the prom episode live and so I got to talk to them about how I called them out publicly about, you know, the little prom disgrace. Yeah, it's weird. That's and that's what happens. You talk about your personal life and you never know who's actually, you know, yeah. will have listened or heard it or, or whatever. So, um, I mean, it's good to know that at least those two will be constant listeners just to see what you have to say about them. Yeah, because that's now. what happened. If someone was like, yeah, they were talking about you on this podcast, I'd listen to every fucking episode. All so. the dirty laundry is coming out. <laughs> It is. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So life again, all the ups and downs are happening. Are you ready to like review a book? Yeah. So, uh, as it turns out, because, uh, at the day we're recording, this is the 29th. This will be our final review of 2019. That's kind of exciting. For the, probably for the eighth time I'm saying this, I feel like I should have learned that old Lang Syne song. Um, cause I feel like this would have been a good place to, to insert me singing that. Um, and despite me having watched it's a wonderful life again this year, still no idea. Can I tell you, it occurred to me that the most unbelievable thing about that movie is that there is a room full of 30 people, ra- random people. I mean, they're all people from, from, you know, George Bailey's town and all of them know the fucking words to that song. That's the most unbelievable thing about that movie. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Cause the only people... I would imagine know the lyrics of that song are people that have to perform it for one or one reason or another, like whether it's like your choir or whatever, or like you're a band that's doing yeah. a, like a punk version of it. Dude, that, that like the fucking like barely English speaking um, bar owner 
in that. Like he's singing all the words. Like there's no fucking way any of this is happening. <laughs> this this is look, I can buy the the Clarence and the the angels have lined up and Clarence is trying. Like I can get to all that, but then I was like, all right, this is this is where they lost me right at the end. Anyway. <laughs> the suspension insert, of disbelief could not support. Yeah. <laughs> insert old Lang Syne here for for our final episode of the year. Um we will be back next week with a year in review episode, but I <sighs> You know how sometimes you say things like I'm getting to to what we're doing this week in in my own way. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, if only, you know, they had flying cabs by now, I could get to work faster. And you you say these things, right? And you don't actually expect them to happen. Message Rob because I go, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could actually find like one authority on the best books of 2019? And then we read what somebody, an authority has said is the best book of 2019. The problem is every website in the world has some kind of, well, every book related website in the world has some type of best of 2019 list. So like, how do you pick? So I kind of say this in passing to Rob, like it sucks that there isn't <laughs> like one place where we could go and say, all right, this is kind of definitively the best book of 2019. Let's read it and talk about it for our last episode. So I say this just in passing and Rob Rob, I, I took it gets seriously. Me a flying, gets me a flying cab. Would you like to explain what what you did? Yeah. Um, so, I I took it almost as a challenge because he's right. There's not one kind of like aggregate way of knowing what the most um, well acclaimed book of the year is. There's not there's not a an authority on the matter. So what I did was. Um, I, I I just gathered a bunch of data and I was like, well, something's going to come out. Something is going to pop as like the most, um, you know, well-acclaimed or whatever book of 2019. And so I went to, I think it was like 14 different uh, websites, top books of 2019 lists. And I will tell you what they are right now. So uh, I did the Amazon, um, uh, the I just did the Amazon uh, fiction list of like the top selling books. That was one. Publishers Weekly, Washington Post, New York Times, Vulture, Time, Thrillist, Glamour, Oprah Mag, Marie Claire, Town and Country, Good Housekeeping, Goodreads, and Esquire all had lists. And I took the top 10 books of each of those lists. Pretty impressive, right, so far? I stunned. Like, I've heard this, but I'm I'm stunned (laughs) at the work that went into this because it never would have occurred to me, first of all, we're on like Oprah's website. And I mean, you really yep. went, you, you dug deep. I dug deep. And so what I did was like, uh, I awarded 10 points for a number one, nine points for a number two, eight for a number three. And I, you know, like, so I, I just I weighted it based on how high on the list they were. And I, I, I did a total points, but then I also counted the number of t- uh, lists that they appeared in. Cause not every list has the same, same books in it. And then I did an average score based on, the points divided by the number of lists that they were they appeared in, um, and really what happened was three books really jumped out. Three or four books jumped out as being um, ubiquitous amongst multiple lists, but then also like highly ranked in those. And so I gave Livius two titles of what the what the two highest points were, um, and then how many lists they appeared in. Because the question was. What's going to be the more deciding factor? How many lists they appeared in 
or what their overall average score was. And so the top two books, I know that everybody is snoring right now because this is so boring. <laughs> two books both had 28 points. Trust Exercise was the top um, at 28 points, uh, appearing in five different lists with an average score of 5.6. Black Leopard, Red Wolf was the other book, 28 points as well, but only showing up in three lists, which bumped its average score up to 9.33. So I was like, what do we do? Do we do the one that's got the higher average score? Because that means like, yeah, maybe it's in fewer lists, but it's got a higher score. Or do we do the one that shows up in more lists and maybe because it's in more lists, the score goes down. We decided to go with the one that showed up in the most lists. And so trust exercise, um, mathematically, (laughs) based on the information that I gathered, was the most highly appreciated book of the year. I will add one more. I will add one more. Rob tells me to choose, so I choose, and I choose Black Leopard, Red Wolf, or whatever it's called. <laughs> and then Rob tells me it's sci-fi, and it's like 600 pages. And I was like, oh, let's go with the other one, whatever <laughs> the other one is. And uh, we landed on Trust Exercise by Susan Choi, which appeared in five of those lists that Rob mentioned. Yep. Um, and uh, like I said, in a mathematical way, I feel like we're being pretty honest about this potentially being the best book of 2019. And that's the question we're here to answer. Is this the best novel of 2019? Now, the people who do those lists did not read every book that comes out in 2019, right? Like, Definitely not. Yeah. We didn't. They but also... we had like 31 books. So I think we're, we're probably in line with the people who wrote those lists, right? Right. But in all fairness, they also didn't read the books necessarily that we read. So we might think differently than they do. Did you notice any books that we reviewed this year on any of those lists? I'm not asking you to go back and look, but did did it jump out that you were like, oh, look, there's so-and-so on this list? Um, So of the 14 lists in the top 10 of all of them, zero books we've reviewed so far (laughs) up up here. I did, All right. I did pay attention. So, and that that includes like some like real hot list things. Like, um, we read Wanderers by Chuck Wendig, which was a real buzz item, and The Warehouse by Rob Hart, which was also really buzzing. Um, and they didn't show up in, in any of those lists. Yeah, that's uh, that is what it is, I guess. So, Oprah, you... not really big on The Warehouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Oprah. Yeah. Oh God. To, you know, to her, you know. She loses out. She didn't get to read it. The Oprah Book Club. I don't... Yeah. I All right. I feel like there should be a book, <laughs> book club where, like, we could get, like, a sticker put on books. So here's what I propose. You just print more book stickers. And then when we read a great book, like I'm looking at my bookshelf and I already see one or two. Like, we just show up at local bookstores and stick the sticker on the books ourselves. Oh, man. What if we had, like, a... Uh... I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we could riff off of the Bookhouse Boys from Twin Peaks. Okay. The Bookhouse Boys. <laughs> I the Bookhouse like, Club. I feel like we've talked about this. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, before. maybe on the View. Maybe not so much yeah. on Unbooked. But um, that is an interesting idea. Yeah, I'm gonna I take your say. idea and run with it. We'll see if anything happens in 2020 with uh, 
the books getting arrested for yeah. defacing books at the local Barnes and Noble. That's, can yeah. we take a pause? And I know we're just avoiding talking about this book, but I want to pause for a second because, like, every now and then you'll see on social media, like, it happened with Rob Hart recently, where he's like, oh, you know what? The fucking bookstore in the airport has a bunch of my books, and now they're all signed. What is what is there some sort of social contract between authors and bookstores where like the bookstore has to let you sign the books that you, because like, if I was the clerk working at the bookstore, I'd be like, how do I fucking know you're Rob Hart? Like, is that yeah. ever, has that ever occurred to you? No, no, it hasn't, but you're right. I did see Rob Hart post about that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I like what's, what's there to lose for the bookstore? <laughs> Well, but you, no, I mean, no, like, seriously, sense. like, you're like, oh, this copy was signed. Like, it's a fucking used copy. Like, I don't want it because the author signed it, you know, but yeah. it could increase the sales. Because all I could tell you is if I was in a bookstore where that happened. So maybe this happens at a lot of airport bookstores because, you know, authors travel and whatever. And we know they're all vain enough to go see if their book is on the shelf. Like, I would just make sure I'd, there'd be stickers at the front. They'd be like, look, if the guy shows you an ID. <laughs> And and can you know his ID matches the author name? Like let him sign them and then put these stickers on them and then mark them up by five bucks. That's what I would do. I don't imagine they do that. All I'm saying is I'm waiting for some dude named Rob Olson to come out with a book. Second roll around, fucking signing books. You are uh, well. That's but here's what happened. They'd be like, wait, your driver's license has two B's, and he'd be like, yeah, it's a mistake. Let me just sign these fucking books. Yeah, I got the sharpie out. Let's just fucking. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about the second B. I won't sign it. And then I slide 20 bucks over the counter. (laughs) Yeah, and you just start signing books. All right. Why don't you tell people about Susan Choi, who's probably in an airport somewhere right now trying to sign copies of Trust Exercise. (laughs) Just fucking wrestling fucking bookstore clerks who are listening to this podcast, and they're like, wait a minute, why are we letting people sign these books? All right. (laughs) All right, Susan Choi's first novel, The Foreign Student, won the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. Her second novel, American Woman, was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize, holy shit, and was adapted into a film. Her third novel, A Person of Interest, was a finalist for the 2009 Penn Faulkner Award. In 2010, she was named the inaugural recipient of the Penn-slash-W-G Sebald Award. Her fourth novel, My Education, received a 2014 Lammy Award. Not sure what that is. Her fifth novel, Trust Exercise, and her first book for children, Camp Tiger, came out earlier this year. A recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, she teaches fiction writing at Yale and lives in Brooklyn. In addition to the bio, which was probably written before this book really started gaining steam, I know that it also, uh, Trust Exercise, uh, earned the National Book Award. So it's got that little gold foil sticker on the front of it now, too. Do you uh, do you already have a physical copy of it for for the mm, book no, library? Probably go to Barnes and Noble tomorrow. <laughs> All right, when you're in there, just sign some books. Does sign a bunch of Susan <laughs> Choi books. So while you're there, I can do a kind of a girly, like a more girly kind of. I'm sure flourish. you could. I'm pretty sure that you could. I don't know why that didn't surprise me when you said that at all. <laughs> I um, she also has the distinction of potentially being the best book on booked for 2019. So we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. It's it's this or thirty one other options. That is true. And in our year in review, I'm <laughs> sure we'll pick a favorite. I'm pretty sure I already know what mine is. Oh, I know what and, yours is. Come on, yeah. everybody knows what yours is. 
Yeah, so uh, here is the synopsis for, well, it could be trust exercise. So let me read the synopsis. In an American suburb in the early 1980s, students at a highly competitive performing arts high school struggle and thrive in a rarefied bubble, ambitiously pursuing music, movement, Shakespeare, and particularly their acting classes. When within this striving brotherhood of the arts, two freshmen, David and Sarah, fall headlong into love, their passion does not go unnoticed or untoyed with by anyone, especially not by their charismatic acting teacher, Mr. Kingsley. The outside world of family life and economic status, of academic pressure, and of their future adult lives fails to penetrate this school's walls, until it does, in a shocking spiral of events that catapults the action forward in time and flips the premise upside down. What the reader believes to have happened to David and Sarah and their friends is not entirely true, though it's not false either. It takes until the book's stunning coda for the final piece of the puzzle to fall into place, revealing truths that will resonate long after the final sentence. As captivating and tender as it is surprising, Susan Choi's trust exercise will incite heated conversations about fiction and truth and about friendships and loyalties, and will leave readers with wiser understandings of the true capacities of adolescents and of the powers and responsibilities of adults. I feel like that last paragraph was aimed at us. I don't know. Do you think we're going to have a heated conversation? I don't think we're going to have a heated no. conversation about this one. I feel no. like you and I are probably right in the same place on this one, but we'll, we'll see. Pretty low heat. We're, yeah. yeah. We're never yeah. like a one out of 10 on the heat. Yeah, probably. So <laughs> um, here's what I'll say. Uh, as a synopsis, um, I think it, it, it covers the, the, you know, the broad strokes of the book. I am a little confused. So could, do you know what a coda is? Uh, it's a musical term, um, and I think it means um, kind of like either like a finishing part or like a um, it's like a f- like it's either an after the the main thing or it's like the finishing part of something. something so like yeah, it is the concluding passage. I didn't ask; I was pulling it up while you were saying it, so I didn't ask just to see if you knew. The concluding <laughs> passage of a piece or movement, typically forming an addition to the basic structure. Some questions about that that we'll get so to over. They didn't want to talk. fucking say epilogue, basically, is what. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm interested to see because I feel, you know, there's those times where I feel like maybe I missed something, and this might be one of those times. So uh, we'll get to that over in spoiler talk. But yeah. to kick it off, the synopsis um, nails it perfectly. Um, we are at an academy. It's a it's a uh, academy of the arts, and we're pretty quickly introduced to Sarah and David. And and let me back up a second. I don't know how to frame this exactly, but this, um, so the book is basically for all intents and purposes, I'll say it's broken into two parts, which isn't entirely accurate. Okay. The first half of the book, roughly half of the book takes place in in the eighties, but it's done in this narrative style. I don't know how to define this, Rob. I felt like, so it's, it's omnipotent narrator like most books are, but I felt like this omnipotent narrator was almost like relaying a story they heard somewhere. Like I didn't feel like I was really involved in any of these scenes. Does that, sure. is what I'm saying make sense to you? Um, yes. And so actually like, I'm wondering if there are levels to the third person narrator, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This would be like a distant one. I I feel like, like it's not entirely, a hundred percent aware of what's going on. Um, 
it, it's still informed by the perspective of a character, like that kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah. But yeah. but at this this arm's length sort of like I, I didn't get enveloped in the story at all. I felt like someone was telling me the story versus really being in the story, which happens frequently with with, you know, omnipotent narrator, third person, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, so I say that because I don't even like there there are parts in this book where that that distance um, perhaps affected my opinion on the story. But we are introduced to um, Sarah and David um, as they, uh, you know, have been kind of circling one another, uh, you know, in, in this attraction that they have. But really, we, we meet them pages before their initial hookup. Ooh, I'm going to break in. I'm on Wikipedia. The third person subjective narration is a third person subjective mode is when the narrator conveys the thoughts, feelings, and opinions of one or more characters. So maybe it's a third person subjective narration. Could be. Sorry, Could be. please continue. No, that's that, no, no, that's okay. Um, so we initially find ourselves in the middle, which I, I think was, was a clever way of doing it. Like the, the way that we're introduced uh, very quickly to them and, and the, the start of their relationship is through a form of trust exercise um, wherein the Mr. Kingsley that's mentioned in the synopsis um, has them in, in one of the larger rooms and has turned out the lights and they have to move around by feel. And of course, like any high school kid, because, mm-hmm. you know, immediately you're like, I'm going to find the chick that I want to hook up with and start hooking up with her in the dark. You went to high school, right? I think you did. Yeah, you went to high school. There's high school stories. Yeah, all four years. Yeah, in the middle of a classroom in the dark, would you have started screwing around with with a with a girl? Fuck no! Like so, like oh my god, there's so many levels of awkwardness, right? That you want to yeah. avoid, and like if you feel the wrong titty, you're that titty feeler for the rest of high school. It's not worth I'm, it. Yeah, I'm also pretty sure that that statement of feeling the wrong titty doesn't <laughs> actually exist. I, I don't think. That... No, in high school it does. Does it? All oh right. my god! Because yeah. I'm thinking, I was also in high school in the well, early to mid '80s, I guess. I guess <laughs> late '80s, mid to late '80s. So right around the time these kids were, yeah, that struck me as a little, as a little, little off. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh my god, yeah. Um, but it. So I'm going to break in, and I'm going to talk about one of the things that caused the biggest disconnect between me and the book, if that's okay, if I can have a couple minutes. Listen, we're already like 20 minutes into this episode. Take as long as you want. <laughs> um, so the big focus of, of uh, the school that these kids uh, that we follow throughout the book um, um, attend is it's a, it's a arts um, school, but primarily focused on the theater in so much as in the beginning of the book, one of the first things that the kid learned, the kids learned from the teacher is that you spell theater T H E A T R E, not T E R, um, ostensibly because that's how serious they take it, but realistically, it's because theater people are really fucking annoying, pretentious people. I don't know that I've known a lot of theater people. Um, Count yourself I- lucky. I almost was a theater person. Oh, oh. So um, late in high school, um, actually by senior year, uh, instead of taking like honors English four, I opted for speech drama 
and my uh, my teacher in a very non-sexual way was completely enamored with me and like was bringing me pamphlets to like art schools like Steppenwolf is the one that she really Whoa. wanted me to go to yeah nice <clears throat> that was not for me I thought how am I going to have a future as a podcaster reviewing books if I go into theater <laughs> <clears throat> so <laughs> I opted to not do that. Very forward-seeing, little Livius. There, there was no. There was there was a period of time, probably for about a month or two, where I very seriously considered um, doing exactly that and going um, and applying at Steppenwolf, and I did not. So there you go. Wow. Uh, I mean, you still went to uh, college for communications, though, right? I did go to Columbia College, and I focused on um, radio. Wow, that's that's the thing that you use in the car, like if you don't have internet. <laughs> the pre-podcast, uh, yes, that's how people exactly. heard their information. Yep. Yeah, yep. Um, wow, so a little prescient of you there. Um, are, are, so, I hate theater people. I've always hated theater people because, like, there's this whole like. Um, my art makes you know, I bleed my art and blah 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 bullshit like that. Probably the same way that I hate like sports people. Let's be honest. Like, there's something about um, being in the theater that makes people think what they're doing is more important, and um, that they understand things in a way that no one else can understand them. And there's just a whole bunch of pretension that goes into um, theater that uh, <laughs> has biased me against it. So like. It doesn't bode well for the cast of, of this book or the characters of this book because they're all in a theater school and they take that shit super seriously, like from day one. Um, They do. And I mean, I think if that's the, the direction you've gone, like you almost have to. You know what I mean? I, I'm not disagreeing with you on your thoughts on, on the type of person that would do this by and large. Um, But if you're going to do it, might as well get in balls deep, right, and do it. Do balls it the right deep. way. Yeah, balls deep. So really the first half of this book centers on um, kind of the trials and turbulations of this relationship between Sarah and David. But we are introduced to other peripheral characters, and they all kind of get their their little side stories. Um, Sarah and David, you know, pretty quickly have a falling out. And I will say that I really felt that, that Choi was able to deliver on that kind of angst of having been in a relationship with someone at that age and then having to face them on a daily basis um, is something that I, I mean, I think for, by and large, like as an adult, you, you don't have a problem with, right? Like if you split up with, with the girl you're seeing, you probably don't have to see her for six hours a day and in, in a, in the same room, you know, like a classroom setting. So I think that a little bit of that um, friction, both the the kind of love hate relationship. Uh, we see most of this through Sarah's eyes. So Sarah's still enamored with him, but but pretty angry about you know the, the state that their their non relationship is in. So we spend a lot of time with that, but we are introduced to a variety of other characters d- during the course of this. Yeah, and it's tricky to talk about um, other characters because. Like Livia said, this book is broken up into parts, and I don't even know if we're going to even explore the second part, because the second part reveals a lot about the first part uh, in a way that, you know, in the synopsis kind of made it sound ground-shaking and stuff, so we'll see how far we go. But um, uh, there are a bunch of other 
students and all the students have their own like little personalities and stuff like that and um break off into you know romantic whatever it is um probably one of the more standout characters throughout the entire book is Mr. Kingsley who is the main kind of theater teacher of the school um and <laughs> he he's um it's interesting to hear like it's interesting to I would be interested to hear what Livia's thought about this this teacher because like your impressions of this teacher in the first part of the book might be radically changed by what you read in the second part of the book um but he, he on the surface from from Sarah's dominant perspective of the first part of the book he's a a gay kind of eccentric teacher of theater who um really tries to immerse you in like um the methods that get you to be a good actor so like that thing that Livius mentioned at the beginning of of talking about what the story is where like the the lights are out and everybody's kind of going around in the dark he's trying to get you to understand that like you know you have to rely on different senses and stuff like that and so he puts people through these little like actor trials and stuff to to build their their acting um, um skills and stuff like that but you know he probably does some stuff as you read through the book that might not be things that a conventional teacher might do. He might dig a little bit too deeply into people's personal lives or expose some of the things in their personal lives that another teacher might not go that far as to kind of share with other people. So even though he's on the whole in the first part of the book depicted as like kind of a regular dude, there are clues that like maybe he's not a regular dude. Yeah, he's like um like a couple things came to mind reading his character. Like he's kind of like Mr. Holland, if Mr. Holland was kind of a like a badass, you know, Mr. Holland's opus. Kind Never of saw it, but, Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um Dead Poet Society, the Robin Williams character. Yeah. A, a little bit it. like that. Okay. All right. Oh. <laughs> All I'll say is that I'm not cultured. He's Thanks he's, for he's, exposing yeah, it. He's a little, um, and I don't want to say tropey. Uh, I'm sure these people exist. And when I think back to my high school, nobody on like his level, but like there were those teachers that were just cool. And like, if you were accepted by them, like it raised your cool status, you know what I mean? And that's what he is. He's the teacher who kind of, um, does unorthodox teaching, treats the students like they're adults instead of like their 15 year old children, you know what I mean? So, like, we've seen this kind of character before. Um, but, yeah, as, as Rob was saying, it's it's important that you be in his good graces um, because that kind of determines um, kind of like a social hierarchy in the school. Yeah. You know, the, the people who are in his good favor are, are the ones they become the cool kids. So there's that. I know this sounds and I realize we just said this. I know it sounds like like he's going to wind up being a child molester or something. And like I don't want people to get that impression Maybe. from what we're saying. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying I don't want people to get the impression from kind of the way that we've danced around his story. Right. No, I agree. So, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, especially in the first part of the book. And, and, and Livius kind of broke it down. But like the first part of the book. Uh, and the second part of the book are are very different beasts. And in the first part of the book, it's exactly what Livia says. But then, like, as the book goes on, um, it, it's kind of like the book tells you, hey, how reliable was that first narrator? You know, and it starts to make you think about, like, well, what did I read? If If that makes sense. 
Yeah, I, I think, fuck, man. These books are tough to talk about, right? Because usually you don't get, like, spoilers only halfway through the book. <laughs> you, you, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So let's uh, let's say this. Um, we follow these trials and turbulations. There's a huge section that involves a group of traveling um, students who, who come over, like, almost in an exchange program from England to, to put on a, a play at the school, and they stay for, like, three or four weeks or, or whatever it is. But they are important characters in in the scope of the book mm-hmm. in moving the plot forward. There are two in particular, Martin and Liam. They're actually both older. Martin is a teacher at this school in England, and Liam is a former student. I believe he's in like his early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they also are catalysts for things that happen um, over the, you know, uh, the, the second half of this book, I guess. The second half, I will say, takes a jump forward about 15 years. And then we get to revisit some of these people as uh, some of these same characters as adults. And then uh, some of that is a, a retrospective look at the time that we learn about in the first half of the book. Yeah. And so to kind of summarize the first part of the book, heavily from the perspective of Sarah, a little bit from David. And it's really like the day-to-day life of work of, of being at a kind of high profile art school where like, you know, if you do well, you move on to Juilliard or Ivy league colleges or like, you know, like this is your ticket to the big time. Um, this is how people become famous actors, famous singers, whatever it is. Like that's kind of like the stakes of going to this school. Um, but the actual day to day of it is just like all the, you know, hormones and bullshit that an average high school person goes through. And that's kind of like my first, and I know that, you know, wrap ups are a little bit way down the road, but that's one of my first things about the book that didn't really do much for me was that it's the fucking minutia of day to day interactions with your, your teen, you know, like fellow students so it doesn't necessarily compel you forward. You have to just keep kind of plotting through it as as things go on. And Livius might disagree with me, but like... Not eh. even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm going to say is, your fucking teenage life, regardless of who you are, unless you're like weird-ass Justin Bieber or whatever. I was just going to say Justin Bieber yeah. is the first one that came to mind. Like, that guy's probably yeah. got some stories. Yeah. Your, your fucking teenage life is never interesting. And, and like, and so that's what this book is. And, and that's why, like, as a teenager, coming-of-age books are probably great. But as a fucking person in your 40s, a coming-of-age book is like, man, get to the point. And that's kind of where I'm at with this. I, uh, again, you know, this might be a spoiler because I will... Um... Uh, compare and contrast this book to do you remember <laughs> what the other coming of age book we read this year was yeah the Gwendy stuff oh you know what I guess that too the escape of light is what I was thinking oh of. that too Fred Venturini's yeah book. that's more of an actual coming of age book yeah the escape of which light. I I mean we fawned over how great the coming of age stuff was in that book if you well, remember y- sure <laughs> Yes. So it's not it's not that we're adverse to, be, you know, that we're not we're no longer <laughs> able to understand um, a teen story um, because of our you know geriatric uh, positions in the world. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, Fred Venturini yeah. definitely did the did that right. He he made a fucking relatable character though. He made a character that I think um, 
advanced beyond their age due to the suffering that they experienced. Mm-hmm. So it was a character that was more relatable on a universal scale than just a bunch of whiny privileged kids at a fucking prep school. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I, I guess. All right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I Rob mentioned that right the, 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 the majority of the perspective was um, Sarah's. Mm-hmm. in the in the first half of the book and we're, we're purposely obscuring the second half of the book let's just say that there's another perspective that we see in the second half of the book and all i can think about after you said that was all right so we can't relate to these two perspectives but then i thought is the person who can relate to the perspective even going to enjoy this book and my thought was no no do you, you understand what I'm saying, right? So both perspectives are, f- are female, and apologies if I've spoiled too much for you. So I could see where you could say, well, yeah, well, Livius, you don't get it because you were never a 15-year-old girl, and that's mostly true. <laughs> I, I don't know that the girl that relates with Sarah, and we'll stick to the first half of the book, even would have read this and thought like, oh, this speaks to me because this was my life in, in high school. And that, uh, honestly, like, that's kind of where problems start to grow for me is like, um, I felt like even the breakup between Sarah and David in the first part, which happened almost immediately, which a made it so that I didn't even care about their relationship. Um, uh, I, th- I think, um, it was one of those things where it's the trope of if people just talked more this problem that was a huge problem would never be a problem. Like David and Sarah's yep. breakup yeah. was predicated on an, on one specific incident that had, they just had a two minute conversation after the fact and listened to each other. Probably they would still be dating. Yeah. And, and, but you know what? I will say that there's a touch of realism there, especially at that age. Sure. I guess I was always an over communicator. So gotcha. um, whatever look i I agree with everything you said i kind of stick to my you know my guns on i i think that the 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 friction between the two of them um over it but you know had had a sense of of realism for me anyway like i could i could kind of get into um each of their heads on where they were on this thing enough that i found that to be relatable it's just not exactly what i'd want to build my feelings for a character over in a story you know, I, I told you right before the podcast, like I sprained my ankle. Had Dave have sprained his ankle, I'd be like, man, I could totally relate to that. <laughs> but it wouldn't make me, you know, root for him anymore because he's limping around. You know, like that's, you know, so I don't know. So Livius's GoFundMe for his ankle fund is at GoFundMe.com. Yep. Go f- Livesankle.com. Fundthisfoot.com. There it is. Um, I'm fine. I'm fine now, but it's been a rough week. <laughs> All right. We're going to go over to spoiler talk because <laughs> yes, things that Rob has said lead me to oh believe that we are not on the same page with the events in this book. So we're going to go figure that out before we come back and wrap this yeah. up. So it's your last chance to, to make your donation in 2019. I wanted to say it was like a tax deductible thing, but I don't think it is. We're clearly a nonprofit um, organization, although we don't have nonprofit status. You, for as little as a dollar a month, can go catch these spoiler talks that we do. Um, That usually involves us talking up all the way to the very last sentence of this book, which is exactly (laughs) what we're going to do this time. Um, So if you've read the book and you want to hear me be befuddled by things, um, donate a buck, go listen. If you have no intention of reading this book and want to hear 
the things that we can't talk about here that certainly inform our wrap-up and rating for this book, you can also do that over there for only a buck a month, but you're free to donate as much as you want. I believe there is no limit. Uh, no limit that I'm aware of. I just want to point out that there's already 15 hours of spoiler talk on the books that just a dollar a month. So like in that first month, you're like, oh man, a dollar came out of my bank account, but I've got 15 hours of stuff that I can listen to already. Let's not forget that um, other than sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, um, that is the other way you can help support us. We appreciate each and every one of you that do. All right. We, <laughs> we're we back from, I don't even know how long that spoiler talk was, but there was so much uh, foundational uh, conversation that happened in there that solidified a lot of what I felt about the book. And I'm sure that the same can be said for Livius. Um, for sure. So uh, here's my wrap up. <laughs> Uh, this book is stunning. It's a truly masterful collision of formal experiment and storytelling. This book made my head spin Whoa. and then made it spin again <laughs> and then left me breathless. The layers will keep me awake at night. The extraordinary voices that infuse this work won't leave my head. It's an incredible work. That's what my wrap up would be if I was R. Eric Thomas, who gave this five stars on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, I am not going to do that. If, uh, if you came to this episode expecting to find out if this is the best book of 2019, here's my answer. I don't want to speak for Rob. Uh, my answer is no, it is not. Uh, as a matter of fact, I cited a better book earlier in the episode, and I top, I just glanced over at the bookshelf to look at the space that uh, what I believe is the best book of 2019 um, is, is taking up a, a spot. Um, and that one is also better than this. And quite frankly at least 20 of the books, uh, in my opinion, were, were better than this. And, and here's why. Um, this book was, uh, in my opinion, a little bit of a mess. I think I get, after the spoiler talk, what the message um, in it was. And I imagine that, um, to, to take a little, you know, kind of quote from Rob and what he said it is, uh, um, you know, this book is going to resonate with 32% of people. That's how many five-star ratings there are on Amazon right now. And then uh, there's the rest of us where it's not going to resonate um, as hard or at all. And I fall into that latter category. Um, the narrative was weird. Um, I will say it sounded earlier like maybe we were talking down um, the, the, the kind of perspective shift halfway through the book. Um, I cover this in spoiler talk, so I'll say it here. I was intrigued by the perspective shift. And quite honestly, 50% in was the first time that I felt engaged with this book at all. And it lasted about 10 pages because I thought that was kind of a mess too. Um, I came out of this with more questions than answers. Um, and ultimately when I think that maybe I've kind of closed the gap on the, on the, the, the questions and answers a little bit, I, I still didn't get anything out of this. I will say um, this is a slice of life book. This is somebody's um, normal existence. And maybe for me, um, fiction books aren't about that. They're about something maybe a little more extraordinary. Um, I did find there was great dialogue. Sometimes there are authors that I read that I go, man, I could just read the Elvis Cole novels, for example. I could just read for the dialogue. I've read like seven or eight of them. I couldn't tell you one goddamn mystery they were trying to solve, but I could tell you the character interactions are fucking wonderful and they keep you turning the page. Um, it didn't have that. It didn't have a compelling story for me. Um, the narrative form was kind of weird. I said earlier, kind of like distant. And then it, it switches perspectives and doesn't improve much, although it does become a, a lot more 
if I said that was distant, we get a lot nearer to the story, but not not in a way that was was really great. So unfortunately, I'm not going to go with the 32 percent of people that thought this was a five star book. I'm going to land squarely in the nine percent on Amazon that thought this was a two star book. Okay. If you want to, if you want to write a book that um, compellingly demonstrates the poignancy of um, the struggles of of a teenager and uh, their growing sexuality, and the fact that someone is going from being a child to an adult, and the decisions that they make and the impacts of those decisions, um, and 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 the lasting um, changes that can make to someone's life, don't fucking make them theater students just don't it's a bad idea they're annoying assholes you can't give me characters that are going through the realistic struggles of life but then also make them annoying assholes the first half of the book was a struggle for me because i didn't care about these privileged fucking kids and the struggles that they were going through that were the exactly that were exactly the same as every other struggle that every kid is going through. I didn't care. So for half of the book, I was like, "Fuck these kids." To Livius's point, uh, the unexpected shift in perspective, where you realize that the first half of the book is, is a little different than you than you thought it was, um, and you're seeing things from another perspective in the second half of the book. Uh, was pretty interesting for a short amount of time, but that was overshadowed by the fact that um, it was equally disinteresting in just a different way, in a more bitter way. Um, and so all of the goodwill that could have been built throughout the story based on the struggles of real people, which I, I think I can handle, and I think that that's something that does speak to me. I love the idea of like, the suffering and the minutiae of, of an average person uh, was destroyed by the fact that these were, uh, you know, essentially um, unrelatable characters. And so I think I got the message of the book. We talked about it over in spoiler talk and I'll just kind of like summarize a little bit here is like, um, we can make adult decisions before we're adults and the fact that that's the case means that like the 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 status of us as a victim is kind of like uh, up for debate. But anyway, um, overall, I I think I know what the author was doing. I think that she just did it in a way that did not connect with me personally, and probably won't connect with most people who aren't theater kids or art kids or. <laughs> somehow weirdly privileged you know what i'm saying <laughs> this weird fixation you have man we're gonna have to oh dig into this at some point um i just <laughs> apologies if i'm attacking the art community but like people are people and um i just think that like if you're looking for hey if you're about to sit down and write a book and you're like what's the most relatable type of person um you know uh, art kids at a prestigious school isn't exactly the bread and butter of, of what you're trying to do. And so I think a mark was missed there. Um, and it wasn't even like it was because the result was going to be more interesting. If that was the case, great, I get it. 
Um, I, I feel like that wasn't the case. It just it, it kind of alienated me from the relatability that the the author was trying to build between me and the character. And so it could be my personal bias, but I doubt it. So we're going to go two stars. Um, I'm sorry. Can you clearly, um, for the listeners, answer the question, is this the best book of 2019? <laughs> I promised answers. <laughs> uh, I forgot to add that uh, this is not the best book of 2019. So um, I've been looking at some reviews. I looked at a bunch of five-star reviews. Um, one of them said best book of the year. So, Ooh. I mean, you know, um, I've been looking at, of course, the one-star reviews, too, because what's more fun than the one and five-star yeah. reviews? And one, one review just said boring, but which I thought was an interesting, you know, to write just for your entire description. But this poor person said, I bought this book on Audible for a long drive. And I thought, you know what could make this worse? Fucking listening to someone read it to you. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, long driver. Oof. Um you know quite honestly no offense to susan choice she wrote the book she wrote um it didn't connect with us we tried to find you know a, a scientific way and I, I think that rob did a wonderful job um uh, aggregating this information and and coming up with a very short list of us to select from um, i'm sure we're going to talk about our favorite books of 2019 in our next episode which will be our year in review episode um so you can uh, come back for that uh I, in, I don't think a week i think it's probably gonna be a little bit shorter than a week before we try to wrap up 2019 mm-hmm. um, i know rob has charts and graphs and i have caffeine to keep me awake through all that so uh coming up in the next uh several days you should be hearing our 2019 uh year in review where uh, you know maybe we'll talk about the worst book we read this year i'm already i was updating a spreadsheet as you were giving that information yeah (laughs) i'm guessing i i I feel pretty strongly that we're going to come together on the top book of the year and if we're going to go into it probably on the bottom book of the year too yes um so uh 33 books reviewed on this podcast this year is that we decide 32 books uh it's 30 it's weird 32 reviews 33 books because the gwendy book episode was two books yep so we've read 33 books we've reviewed on this podcast this year we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in our next episode um can i drop some some plugs for for things that i've i've watched on tv over my uh, holiday vacation oh my god were you looking at the baby yoda um I, i well i've been watching that all along so since like episode two i think is when uh, when I started watching The Mandalorian. (laughs) So, yes, I watched The Mandalorian, which I quite enjoyed. Uh Um, I don't think there's a lot of people that didn't enjoy The Mandalorian. I do have that crazy feeling that Disney subscriptions are being canceled left and fucking right, though. (laughs) Um, Right now, over, you know, The Mandalorian's over, so they'll just jump back in in the fall Mm -hmm. and drop another 20, 25 bucks to watch uh, the rest of it. Um, I did watch You Season 2. Um which I was a big fan of uh, You Season 1 on Netflix, um, which was originally a Lifetime show that got bought by Netflix, I guess. Yeah. Um, Based on books, which I think I might add to my non-booked podcast reading list um, by uh, Carolyn Kepnes. I I might be getting that wrong. Um, But I also watched um, Jack Ryan Season 2, which is... uh, (laughs) Also, very loosely based on novels. So the characters from novels, I don't think any of the stories actually are, because um, they're all been brought to modern day. And there was something else I watched too. 
What else did I watch? Oh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Season 3, which is every bit as endearing as all the other Marvelous Mrs. Maisel seasons. So, very happy with the TV viewing. Um, I haven't watched any of that stuff. Yikes. Uh, I feel like I've been watching stuff, but I've been re-watching old stuff, like The Castle Rock. Did we talk about that last time we did an episode? Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've really watched much since then, like except for like kind of rewatching Christmas episode or Christmas movie themed things, or just like I don't know. I, I haven't been very watchy lately, um, but I'm gonna break in with a key page update because this is our final book of 2019, right? It I, is I, I for sure. It, I think it bears telling our listeners that in 2019, as a podcast. <laughs> As a podcast, and I say that because there's two books I didn't read. Uh, we reviewed a total of, like I said before, 33 books. One th- uh, excuse me, 11,119 total pages. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. That's not I, bad. I'm, I'm very happy with that number. I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but we had slacked off um, for a couple of years, and uh, this last two years, we've we've really brought it back. So, I feel pretty comfortable. Um, saying and Rob and I talked about this right before the episode, like thirty to thirty-two is a really good number for us for book reviews. I think. Yeah, because a lot of people like, yeah, you got those people out there that are like, "Oh, I read a book every week and stuff," and it's like, how many fucking podcasts do you record and edit, yeah, and post and. I think I read promote. like six, six or seven books off the podcast this year. So, eh, <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. Yeah, so I I feel like we're doing a good job considering the workload of other shit that we also like. If me and you didn't have jobs. Three, four books a week, right? Um, yeah, I, yeah, probably. I don't think we'd try to review three or four books no, a week, but Jesus. I'm sure I, I'm sure I would read at least two a week if yeah. I was sans employment. Yeah. Um, so standing up, eh, I'm not going to go too much into you know um, stats because that's what uh, the next week's episode is going to be. But um, 2018, we did come in at 32 books as well, uh, but 10,016 pages. So we managed to read higher pages per book, uh, adding mm-hmm. up to almost a thousand more pages than last year. So I feel good about that. And I want to go out on saying the fact that we're, we're recording this on December 29th, which is my mom's birthday. So oh, happy birthday, Rob's mom. Happy birthday. My mom. I think she's turning. That's not something you ever tell people a woman's age. She's turning whatever age she's turning. <laughs> there you go. Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday. Can I uh can I take us out with with a little song? Please. Should old acquaintance <laughs> be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? What does it mean though? I have no idea. Dude, it gets really weird cuz at one point I'm pretty sure this this actually goes into like um um, shit was that uh, Scottish? Way twa hey run about the braise and put keep the goins fine. Keep that. No, I, I didn't want to. I said oh, keep gotcha, reading. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no. I think I think I'm good. Or can you work keep reading into the song somehow? I'm sure I can. Here we go. And there's a hand, my trusty fear, and geese a hand of thine. Keep reading until next year for old Lang Syne. 
Oh, it doesn't get better. No, it doesn't.